Hello and welcome to the Art Engager podcast with me, Claire Baum. I'm here to share techniques and tools to help you engage with your audience and bring art, objects and ideas to life. So let's dive into this week's show. Hello and welcome back to the Art Engager podcast. I'm your host, Claire Bowne of Thinking Museum and this is episode 74. So today I'm delighted to be talking to Ben Street about his new book, How to Enjoy Art. We're talking about how we can engage with art without needing to know any historical information. We're also exploring how we already have all the tools we need to enjoy art right within us. But before that, last week I was talking about ways in which we might engage in discussions and perspective taking about the recent climate activist protests in museums. I also shared a really useful exercise that will help you to know if you can facilitate a discussion on this and other sensitive subjects objectively. So it's a really useful one. If you haven't listened already, do go back and listen to episode 73. And as always, if you'd like to support this show, you can do so. Treat me to a cup of tea on buymeacoffee.com forward slash Claire I'll put a link in the show notes. And if you like this podcast, please do and go and give us a quick five star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help to get the word out. So thank you. So let me introduce my guest this week. Ben Street is an author, educator and art historian. He's also been a school teacher and a museum educator. He's a writer of interpretation for museums and exhibitions and a writer of art criticism. He's an academic and he writes books. His books, How to Enjoy Art, A Guide for Everyone and How to Be an Art Rebel are out now. In our chat today, we talk about the values that guide Ben's work and how he's passionate about us all being able to enjoy art without needing to know anything about it. We talk about my favourite subjects, slow looking and open questioning. We talk about how we can approach an artwork with the tools we already have. We explore how we can use the physical encounter that we have with art to engage with it, how it feels to stand in front of a huge painting or likewise encounter a very small artwork. We discuss why we rarely feel that we need to read about a piece of music to listen to it, but with art, we feel we need to know something about it to look at it, and that artworks come wrapped in text before we can even get to them. Why is this? How has this come about? We focus on why looking is so important to the art experience. We explore ways in which we can look for longer and we talk about how space affects how we relate to art. This chat is jam-packed with ideas and inspiration for you. I know you're going to love it. Here's my chat with Ben. Enjoy. So, hi Ben. Welcome to the Art Engager podcast. Thank you, Claire. I'm delighted to be here. 
So can you tell us, for the benefit of all our listeners who can't see where you are right now, where you are in the world? Yeah, I am in southeast London, which is where I do most of my work from. And your work, tell us a little bit about what you do and, yeah, uh, your experience perhaps to this point. Yeah, there's quite a complicated answer to that, but I'll try and keep it really simple if I can, or at least I'll keep it straightforward for now. Um, Basically... I've been working for the last um, 20 years, probably, approximately, um, in a kind of mediation role between artworks and different publics. That's the kind of way I understand it. That's the way I sort of describe it to myself, so I know what I'm doing. So So that mediation role has taken on lots of forms. It's been, I've been a, a school teacher for many years, I'm currently teaching at universities. Um, I'm a writer of interpretation for museums and exhibitions. I'm a writer of art criticism. I'm an academic and I write books. So, but it's all, I think, basically variations on the idea of being between an artwork and a person looking at it. That's a really nice way of describing it. And I like the idea of a, a mediator as well. So, Thinking about your broad experience, I mean, um, when I was reading about your experience as an art historian, you've also been a museum educator, teaching. So what are the those values and principles that really guide your work? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, and one I'm always uh, kind of asking myself, I guess. But um, I think basically um, my sort of guiding principle in all of those aspects of my work has been about really sustained looking at objects. And it sort of relates, obviously, to what you've talked about with guests on the podcast before, which is the idea about slow looking, which obviously we talk about more. But um, all of those things have been about encouraging a slower apprehension of artworks, a slower register of them, to kind of adjust yourself to their time frame rather than to see them on your own time frame i guess that's i can maybe unpack that later if you like no we can come back to that i think um, yeah, that's definitely, i was going to say you're in the right place this is definitely uh this is one of the, the the themes one of the passions for this podcast for my work as well over the last 10 years or so i really wanted to focus our chat on your new book which mm. um i must say um i was very excited when it came out, um, rushed and got my copy. I've really enjoyed reading it. So what prompted you to write How to Enjoy Art? Thank you, first of all, for saying that. That's really nice. I realised that experiences that I'd had as an educator, especially with younger children, were experiences that I think are valuable ones for anyone to be aware of. Um, And what I mean by those experiences is excuse me, is experiences of open questioning when it comes to artworks, slow, slow looking and a kind of group dynamic in creating an idea of meaning. And I thought that all of those ideas, which are so kind of intrinsic to what museum education is, are ideas that could be useful for anyone wanting to engage with art. I think that adult audiences don't get the opportunity to be taught about art in the way that school children are. 
And I think that the way school children are taught in, not all museums, but in, in the, you know, I was trained in the American system of inquiry-based learning, like of open questions and things. Um, and I think that way of looking at art is something that doesn't have to just be for children. It's something that's really relevant for adult groups and it's relevant, whatever your level of knowledge. I mean, I find those, I mean, I'm an academic too. And so I actually find those sorts of things really useful in my academic work, just keeping the questions open and keep asking myself, you know, that question, that, that improv question, yes, and like I noticed this and this and, and keep building on it. So, so the, the book came out of a realization that, 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 that there was a lot of writing around art that treated artworks as repositories of information that could just be quote unquote read that you could just look at a painting and then you know you could sort of understand it through recourse to like a set of data and then you would have cracked the painting and you can move on to the next one i want to do something which kept the mystery of paintings and artworks generally open to keep the mystery alive of artworks and not to suggest that artworks are things that can be cracked or decoded um, because that's, I strongly believe that that's not what they're for. Um, so that's kind of what it came from, really. I also wanted to set myself a challenge. And I'm, to be quite honest, I'm quite amazed that I was able to do this, but I didn't do it. The book is a real object. But um, I wanted to write a book about art, which included no traditional art history at all. They had no biography, no historical contextualization, no discussion of conservation, no discussion of materials and techniques, just to be about what would it be like if you looked at an artwork that you knew nothing about? And rather than just standing there and reading text or listening to an audio guide or getting a guided tour, that you could actually figure it out yourself, that you could do it. And the, the principle of the book, which is, I think, kind of the principle of a lot of the work that I do, is that people already have the tools with them to understand artwork. They just don't know that they do. And so the book and a lot of the other things that I do are quite simply about encouraging people to realise that their everyday experiences of life are relevant to the experience of looking at a painting from a different country, a different religion, 500 years ago. It, the, 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 what you want is to bridge the gap that seems to be there, but is not really there. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I was, as you saw, nodding along at various yeah. points because lo lots of it has, uh, really struck a chord with me as well. My my work over over the the past few years, I do a lot of work training in museums with museum educators and guides, mm. and I'm trying to maybe change the way that perhaps some guides, maybe more traditional guides might work with members of the public and how they might work with artworks, how they might engage with them. And I've heard the, the same comments. Uh, many of my trainings are enthusiastically received by a lot of people, but there will always be a few comments saying, well, this won't work with adults. Adults prefer to be told information. They want to hear my knowledge they want to hear what i've learned as an art historian so yes lots of this was um really resonating with me and and the the point is as you made it's it's about engaging with works of art as as people as we already have the tools within mm. us mm. so 
I think, yeah, taking it from that standpoint, how can we approach a museum with the tools that we already have? What what tools do you recommend mm. um, in your book? Well, that's a great uh, a great question. I, I can just respond to what you said as well because I it struck a chord with me because I've heard I've heard that before as well. I've heard I've heard it said, you know, adults don't. Well, that's not what adults want. Adults want, as you've already said, adults want to be told all this information. You think unless the information is embedded in an actual experience of looking then they might as well read a Wikipedia page. And by the way, I am an art historian, which means that I'm not discounting. I don't, I do not believe that artworks are equivalent to a random object that you put on the table. We could have a conversation about this. I've got a coffee cup here. We could have a conversation about the coffee cup and we could have a really nice long conversation about a coffee cup, but a coffee cup is not the same thing as a, as a, just because I've been thinking about him a lot, a painting by Matisse. It's a different thing. So I do think my approach is also to respect the artist and to keep the artist alive in the conversation and not treat the ob not treat the object as just a kind of a random thing. I want to respect the physicality of the object too. But um and this leads on to answering your question. What do we bring with us? Um one initial thing I, I think and something I write about in my book and think about a lot is the idea of scale. Um we encounter, we negotiate the world through our sense of relative scale, like how big we are in relation to this thing, whether we need to duck our heads to go through that doorway, you know, how far away something is, how if we have to look up at something or look down at something, like really basic physical actions that happen in order to negotiate just being alive in the world, like whoever we are. Now, all of those things are things that artworks also are operating within, because the thing that's distinctive about an artwork is that it exists in three-dimensional space. Now, little asterisk at the end of that, and the asterisk says, yeah, there are some artworks that don't, but most artworks do exist in physical space. And if we want to, I mean, I want to really focus on what makes fine art, I call it fine art, there's a bit of a naff phrase to use, but anyway, fine art, what makes that different to films, books, poems, music, etc. What makes it different is that unlike all those things, it's embodied. It's like, it's a thing in the space with us. A song is not a thing. A book is not a book is a thing, but but a book is reproduced can be reproduced millions of times, and it's the same thing. You know, I can read Great Expectations on my phone. I can read the original manuscript, and it's the same novel, right? But the Raft of the Medusa by Jericho. It's only one thing. It's not, it, you can see it on a screen, but it's, that's not the Raft of the Medusa. That's a photograph of the Raft of the Medusa. It's a totally different thing. So I want to hone in on what makes the experience of art unique. And one of the things that makes it unique is that it's a physical encounter. So I think we need to just say, okay, well, let's, let's actually think about that rather than standing in front of, sorry to use a cheesy, you know, it's a cheesy example maybe, but you know, Raft of the Medusa by Jericho, you can stand in front of that and you can reel off loads of historical data. But the most important thing that painting is doing is communicating through its actual physicality, its size, like it's a huge object. And you can say, well, what's it a huge object like? I mean, it's like the size of a wall. It's like the size of a billboard or a large cinema screen or, you know, another thing we have to negotiate physically. So we can, rather than leaping in 
to interpretation rather than starting to put it into little boxes of language and context. We can say, well, how does it feel to stand in front, stand or sit in front of this huge object on the wall? Like, what's that feeling like? And just stay with that feeling for a bit. Stay with it and think about how that feels because everyone knows how that feels because everyone's had to negotiate the world physically. So that's what I mean by the tools that we already have. Like you're, We already have those tools. Those are things we use all the time. And sometimes we can feel, well, there are a number of barriers, right? And what, sometimes we can feel that our everyday experiences are not ones we should draw on when we look at pictures or sculptures. But actually, that's the only way we can look at them. You know, we can't stand in front of an old sculpture and pretend it's ancient Greece. We're not in ancient Greece. The only way we can bring it to life is by comparing it with our own experiences, by bringing it to life for ourselves. And I would make another comparison here with books. Every novel, right? Every novel is a collaborative experience. Like every novel is a collaborative experience. I keep using these cheap, let's use Harry Potter as an example, right? So <laughs> Harry Potter was half written by JK Rowling and half written by me. Because when I read it, what I saw in my head was visual images that I invented. And that is how that is. I, I'm, the, I'm one of the authors. Now, this is very established in art practice, right? So if you, you know, you can go back to someone like Marcel Duchamp, who's a big figure for me, who, who also said, you know, the authorship of a work is not just the artist. The authorship is made in, in the experience, in the encounter. I think we can forget that. And I want to keep that at the forefront of how we understand the art experience to be. Um, yeah, that's a that's a bit long-winded, but I hope I've sort, sort of addressed some of the things you asked. Yeah, there's so many things I'd love to pick up on from there. But one thing you reminded me of is in, in the book when you talk about other art forms like books or films or music and how we don't feel as though we need to read anything about those art forms before we feel that we can dive into them. So we wouldn't dream yeah. of really reading about a piece of music without we feel that we have all the tools we need to be able to listen to it. So why is it so different with art? How has, how has this come about? <laughs> this <laughs> Great question. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I mean, for instance, like, you know, I'm a massive fan of Stevie Wonder, for example. Like, and I, I, there are songs by him I've listened to like seven or eight thousand times or whatever. But I don't really know anything about him. I don't know the basic facts. I don't know anything about how the album was recorded, like where it was made. I know none of those things because I don't really feel I need to. And I don't feel that knowing that information is going to make me like the song more. It's not going to help me understand the song more. And I think, well, why should it be, to, re to echo your question, why should it be that a painting should be any different to that. Um, the problems that, you know, I mentioned this idea that, you know, there, there, are, there are things that artworks have that, that songs, books, et cetera, don't have, which is that they have a physical presence, which needs to be, you know, attended to. But the other thing about artworks is that they, you know, that they have to be, they have to be within certain spaces in order to be seen. Like they, they, they rely so much on a physical, on an actual spatial, context so you know even a let's disregard public sculpture although that's a different thing but like that also needs a certain kind of concept but like a museum context for, for instance which is how we mostly experience artwork in museums and galleries 
a museum already in its architectural style already interprets artwork for us you already start interpreting a collection before you step in the door and you step in the door and and a museum you know it has a certain role you know public museums are there as educational institutions as much as conservation ones and academic ones to some extent etc um and commercial enterprises all that stuff but the um so 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 there's often text in other words i mean just to get to the point of what you're asking me um there's often text we, we encounter them like something i mentioned in the book is that they come wrapped artworks come wrapped in text like you can't get to an artwork you can get to a song i could play you a song right now you have no nothing gets in the way between you and the song but an artwork lots of stuff gets in the way like the museum gets in the way the text on the museum wall gets in the way lots of, it's like mist it's like fog in front of the picture like it's you have to it's like media there's all this mediation that's happening you have to be able to blow away that fog you have to be able to what to sort of to, to clear the air so you can actually have a closer encounter with it um and make the encounter more like a song because i do i do think that they're I do think that it's all much of a muchness. It's kind of the same thing. Like th those, I do think that pop music and painting and Renaissance paintings are basically the same thing. You know, th th these, these, these are, you know, that they, they use the, the means at their disposal to create a certain kind of, a certain kind of reaction. And uh, if you tune into those things, you're able to get the reaction. It's just that the fact that art isn't portable, like a song is portable, and it's not shareable, like a song is shareable, it becomes much more difficult to have an unmediated relationship with it. So that's that's the issue, really, I think. Yeah, there's, there's all these things in the way. And I think there's also rules and habits. Um, we have we have certain rules when we of how we behave when we go to museums, of when we enter the space, um, how we walk around the space. Uh, what we look at, what we read, um, there's a real, there's a set of norms around behaviour in museums. And what you advocate for in the book, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is a different way, that kind of, that slowing down, not feeling the need to, to see everything in one go, that has been somehow part of our, our norms or the way we visit museums. So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about how looking is so important to this mm. personal connection with the artworks i get this idea that um the art experience as we normally have it mitigates against slow looking like a lot is stacked against it and one of the things that's stacked against it apart from habit force of habit is the fact that museums are so big it's the fact there's so much in them and you know well you shouldn't complain about the fact that museums, i mean it's you know <laughs> provided the art the objects are there and you know, ethically, um, and there's no restitution claims. You know, it's great that we have so many stuff, so much stuff in museums. The problem with that is that we can feel that we need to see everything. We feel that we need to, we need to pack it in. We need to see, see the whole lot. And we know. And and by the way, my analogy would be if you go on holiday somewhere and you go to a museum on holiday, um, you can think, well, I've got to kind of see all the, I've got to see the whole thing. Um, I, I'm the same, you know, and you get to the end and you go, phew, that was knackering. Mm, did I really look at anything? Not really. I just basically just did the museum. I like paced the museum, but it wasn't a very satisfying experience. And you'll find that you don't really remember it. You don't really remember what you saw or you don't remember the experience very well. Um, and I think that's true. Um, and, um, 
So I do think there are there are things there are things stacked against us, and and we have to basically resist what we th- we have to resist the norms of behaviour in a way certain norms of behaviour, and we have to say to ourselves, okay. To quote Mark Rothko, which I think is a good line, he said, my painting is not about an experience, it is an experience. And I think that's something that goes for every artwork. Every artwork is an experience. Now, if you walk through a gallery and it's hung with pit, with paintings, floor to ceiling, you could think of the Met or the Rijksmuseum or the National Gallery in London or whatever. Every single one of those pictures is a potential experience. Whoever you are, you can have that experience. But the only way you can have the experience is by adjusting to the time scale of the picture. Like that's the only way you can do it. You have to you have to stop and look at it. If you walk past it, you you, you know it's like walking. What's it like? Um, it's like going on. It's like being in a fairground, walking through a fairground and seeing all the rides and going, nah. You know, I don't don't like the look of that. That's fine. You know, you might say, I don't fancy going on the roller coaster or the ghost train. The only way you're going to know what it's really like is actually going on it, right? Uh, and the and the you know, you might hate it, um, and you might hate the artwork. That's totally possible too. But the only way you can commit to it is by actually engaging with what the experience is. Look, obviously, we live in a super image rich culture, and. That can be good and bad for looking at old art or just looking at art, because the way we look at well, the way we look at images in an image-rich culture is that we look through them, like we we they're like transparent. Like what I mean by that is that we read them really quickly, like we read an Instagram selfie quickly, like you can understand what it is and you move on to the next thing, or you read a photograph, you know, an advert an advert quickly. But artworks are meant to be read slowly. We can be a we. I hope I'm, I'm trying to make sense here. Like we bring with us, like we're a different audience. You know, if you go to see, let's say you go to see Renaissance paintings, like the audience looking at the paintings now in the museum is totally different audience, partly for lots of reasons, but partly because we live in a culture where we see infinite number more images in a day than somebody at that time would see in a year. So what does that mean? It means to some extent we're more visually literate. It means to some extent we, we've got more images to draw upon, and that's true, because they didn't go to museums, for example. But the other thing is that we can become quite blasé about images. We can kind of get so used to them sliding past us that we can sort of treat all visual materials as though it's the same. We can say, like, that, you know, this Vermeer is the equivalent of a photograph of a selfie on Instagram, and it it is a different time frame of looking. But I want to emphasise that you don't have to know anything to do this. You don't have to know anything, anything. You just have to be prepared to give it time. And anyone could be prepared to give it time, but you just have to be able to be willing to commit. And I promise you that what happens if you commit, that the experience will start to happen. It's like a magical process. It's like the roller coaster starting to move, the wheels start to turn. And the artwork starts to come alive, but it just is is a a roller coaster that you decided not to go on unless you stop. I'd I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, that art of slowing down because I think, well, it's definitely become more well known in the last 10, 11 years. I think definitely in the last 
two years perhaps since since the pandemic there's been lots of slow looking online which perhaps has helped although it's quite ironic that we're looking at as you say pictures of images on a screen rather than actually slowing down in the actual museum but I think what I've noticed over the years is that um, it's actually quite a difficult thing to do to spend time with an artwork it's not an easy thing especially for someone who's a first-time viewer or a first-time visitor to an art museum it's actually quite painful to spend a long period of time with an artwork so do you have any tips for how someone might approach a work of art and approach this idea of slow looking yeah that's you you, you that's such great points you're making uh, i totally agree I, I mean i think you have to go in with the expectation with the knowledge that it can be quite awkward, it can be quite uncomfortable. I mean, one way of getting around the discomfort is to draw it. And even if you're not an art, you, I think, you know, so I've done quite a lot of workshops over the years with people getting them to draw and like nine times out of 10 people say, oh, I can't draw, adults, I mean, I can't draw, whatever. The whole thing with drawing is that you don't have to show anyone you're drawing. Your drawing is a way of thinking, you know, it's a, actually a way of making you look more closely and carefully. And the good thing about drawing in a museum, <laughs> although people sometimes look over your shoulder, is that it allows you to look for longer. It gives you a reason to look for longer. But you can find other strategies. You can you can listen to music. You could actually put a song on and say, right, I'm going to look at this picture for the duration of this three-minute song. And three minutes is quite a long time to look at a picture. And it can give you a little duration. Because I do think one of the big issues with looking at artworks is that people, and I include myself in this, don't really know how long you're supposed to look at it for. And I, I'm, I'm quite interested in those statistics that get shared every six months on Twitter, where people say, new report reveals <laughs> that the average amount of time somebody spends in front of a picture is 60 seconds. You're like, when I hear that, I'm like, so? Because is that short or long? Like, you could look at an artwork for one second. Like, is it, is that bad? You know what I mean? I, it, it's as though the people sharing it... <laughs> I've been guilty of this. The people sharing it know how long you're supposed to look at a painting. And that isn't the that and it isn't 60 seconds. You're like, well, tell me how long you're supposed to look at it for. Because actually artworks don't come with a duration. Like films do. You know, films say this is going to be two hours of your time. Video art doesn't really, that's a bit of an exception. So, and the, the thing about a, an audio guide, um, which I've I've written audio guide scripts before, but not read them out. Um is that the advantage of an audio guide is that it tells you how long to stand in front of a picture for. Like it's, it gives you information, but I'm, I've got no illusions about this. I think it really is basically saying, stay for as long as I'm talking and then move on. Is that helpful? And so when, when, we, when we have this idea that people say, oh, adults want to be told, adults don't want tours where they are, get, have to ask questions and things. I think it's partly to do with the idea that, oh, little blackout. My light's <laughs> gone out. <laughs> 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 Didn't I mean, want to distract you, but no, that's fine. I think I think a really informational tour um, uh, is helpful for people because they don't know how to look. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Like if somebody's guiding you around and gives you lots of historical contextualization and information about a picture, it's really comforting because it basically it tames the artwork. It makes the artwork totally palatable. It means that we can start to imagine that like a Vermeer painting is just a historical product. It's just like, it's just, the Vermeer painting is just a, about Delft in 1650 or whatever. It's not about anything else. And you can contain it 
But I think artworks are unruly. And I actually want my thinking about artwork and my teaching about artwork to maintain the unruliness of objects. And what I mean by unruliness is I don't think artworks can be contained very easily in language. I think that they are, you know, great artworks actually subvert what we have to say about them. There's always more to see, right? And we, you know, we know this to be true. Um, anyway, um, yeah. So, so what am I saying? Oh yeah. Slow looking. Yeah. Um, Slowly, yeah, God, it's hard, it's hard to answer it <laughs> because I don't always do slow looking myself. But I think that um, I think that you can, if you if you think about if if you compare it with the time scale of a different art form, start to think to yourself, okay, like I'm going to look at this, I'm going to look at this artwork for as long as it takes to listen to a pop song. I'm going to look at this artwork for as long as it takes to read a a normal like couple of page length poem i'm going to look at this art and you can keep expanding it you could even say i'm going to look at this artwork for as long as it takes to read war and peace because you could but but these are because every other form of culture is durational like it's got a time art paintings don't have a time photographs don't have a time sculpture doesn't have a time so what you have to do is it's like it, just just like borrow something from another art form and say, I'm going to, I'm going to make this durational. I'm actually going to do this. And I bet anybody could handle that. You know, pop your earphones on and listen to like a three minute pop song while you look at, a, and also it will totally change the way you see the picture and just do it for that amount of time. And then you can, then you're starting to adjust to the time frame of, of pictures because they have this, you know, because pictures, paintings or whatever have this problem of being flat and visual so that they can become like other flat and visual things. But I don't think they are. That's really what I think. So useful. And I think what you do in the book as well is that you give us, you give us frameworks through which we can approach an artwork with. And I, I know through my work as well that that's been especially useful for people who, who find that slowing down difficult. Can you give me a framework, a loose mm. framework that will help guide my looking, help me think about what I'm looking at um, and we've already mentioned scale which is you know um, one of the ways that you mentioned in your book that we can engage with art you've also got uh, colour and process placement content um, placement for me is uh, fascinating as well because I'm always curious about the way artworks are hung in a particular gallery mm. and the choices <laughs> that have been made about what's next to what and yeah, and the space inside the gallery as well. I mean, how can space affect how we relate to art? Mm. Oh, huge. I mean, massively. Um, yeah, also space, the space of museums and galleries um, sort of teach us how to move around the galleries too, I think. Like they can, I mean, certain museums have like a, I'm just thinking about museums that I know, especially old master ones, you know, the Met in New York, for example, you know, you go up the steps inside the Met and it's got this massive hall, which is, you know, look, I'm quite honest here. I'm intimidated by it. And I and I should feel totally at home in museums, but I don't. The Met is like totally overwhelming, not just because it's so big, but also because I just feel like I'm the wrong kind of person to be in the Met somehow. It just feels way too grand. Um, and I guess it, I get why people don't like going to museums like that completely. But um, um and that sort of, the, and the decision about what goes where, 
in on the walls again like completely affect that our experience is totally affected by that you know museums are argument you know a, the hang of a room of pictures is an argument about the past you know it's saying these are the works that we think are worth saving these are the works we think are worth looking at you know and so so it's all always not ideological but it's always got a meaning you know it's always got a motivation behind it i guess i would say so that's an important thing to just be aware of and to kind of i guess sort of pick up on so in other words what you can do in a museum is you can start to kind of be be an active be an active participant but not just when you're standing in front of the painting from the moment you go in the door like to just just look like what's the museum doing like how is it making me feel if you go into a you know a classic one is if you go into a commercial gallery space like a like a classic white cube gallery space you know and those are really intimidating environments and i quite often i go in those spaces all the time but i sometimes i i, I stay for less than a couple of minutes because i just don't feel comfortable there at all i mean i'm not going in there to buy art i'm going in there to look at stuff but i don't like being in them at all but that's what i should do really is stay and notice that feeling and say well what's creating that feeling it's not the artwork it's the architectural space it's the environment it's the text on the wall it's all those things all that stuff is interpreting it and once you notice that that's what's going on hopefully you can start to treat it more critically you know you can just say well hold on a second and just remind yourself the natural home of an artwork is not a museum like if you go to an old a museum of old stuff met national gallery Rijksmuseum, prado none of those artworks were made for museums those arts artworks were made for totally different kinds of spaces a church is nothing like a museum a palace is nothing like a museum so suddenly you have you you notice that there's something artificial going on uh, and you say well hold on a second this this is not the feels like the natural home for artwork but it's not it's like as natural as an animal in a zoo so you have to go okay well what what's actually going on here like you can start to be a bit more critical about it and if once you notice placement then you can then you I feel like that can be a liberating experience basically that like you can start to say right well they're interpreting it so I can as well that, that that's that, that's the way I feel about placement I, th I think the other thing about placement as well and this is sort of about placement is that I, said, I really want to emphasize actually is that when we look at artworks in books or on websites or in lectures you what you're looking at is not an artwork you're looking at a photograph um obvious but important point um when you go into an, uh, an art gallery and you look at a painting it's nothing like the photograph you saw in the book or on the website because you can move you can see it from different angles and you should because not all artworks are made to be seen face on and and regardless of whether they're made to be seen face on it doesn't matter you can do it you can move so i advise looking at artworks from the side I advise looking at them from, from below, not because you're, quote, supposed to, but because it means it just opens up the artwork a bit more. It liberates you because it, it, it connects to this idea about behaviour and the idea that, you know, there's a way we think we're supposed to behave in museums. But aside from actually stealing the pictures or touching them, there isn't really, <laughs> you know, there isn't really a, a way to walk in a museum there isn't really you know I mean? there isn't really an author you know we might feel there's an orthodoxy but you can do it how you like yeah I, I love it it reminds me of um 
uh, episode 72 when we're, um, we're talking about movement in museum and you're talking about <laughs> who we are and where we are in relation to an artwork is is really important. It's really interesting as well that sometimes I will work with a group in a museum and I will get everybody to change places literally right. so that they can see it from a different angle. And the, the amount of new things that people notice when they've shifted positions is quite incredible. Mm -hmm. It's just having that awareness of feeling, well, I can use this space how I want to. I can look at it from far away. I can look at it yeah. close up. You know, as you say, from below or above, all those sorts of things are perhaps tools that we can take to a museum visit and we can be more playful and more creative when we mm, uh, mm. visit a museum, which I think can make uh, museums more more um, more enjoyable, but also more welcoming to, other, to everyone so that yeah. lots of people can go in and enjoy those experiences. Totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I think museums are places of creativity. I mean, you know, artworks breed other artworks like that, that you know, and, 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 and make for creative thinking. And that's exactly what they're supposed to be. Um, I completely agree. Yeah. We can't, you know, I think we just have to really assert what I want to do is really assert the fact that if you're an artist, you make objects, you don't make flat image, you make objects. Even if you're a photographer, you make objects, you make three dimensional things. And so we should think about them in a three dimensional way, you know, treat paintings as though they're sculptures because I think they are sculptures basically, or I think whatever they, they, they can switch categories. I don't think those categories are very solid anyway. So I do advise, you know, we, we have to sort of, you know, remind ourselves that we're embodied, you know, that we are, when we look at artworks, we are not just eyes like floating, you know, like disembodied eyes floating through museum space. We're actually bodies and our bodies are different and our bodies can, contain experience and all that stuff is like vital stuff you know it's not stuff we should suppress it's stuff that we should become activated um in the museum encounter i think i think in those words um i'm gonna wrap it up because i think that's a wonderful quote to to end on uh thank you ben for spending time with me today and with our listeners and for talking about your book um i'm going to leave some notes um some links in the show notes so people can look it up and buy it um can you give us a couple of ways that people can find out more about you they can find you online yeah thank you claire um yes i have the uh social media uh twitter my twitter and instagram handle is the same it's at the ben street which was meant to be a joke, by the way. Um, it's, I know it sounds <laughs> cocky, but it was meant to be a joke. And I have a website, which is benstreet.co.uk. Really easy to find. Um, so, yeah, that's those. And, oh, and also, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, under my name. Brilliant. I'll, uh, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for chatting to me. Um, we'll speak again soon, no doubt. Bye. Thank you, Claire. Thanks so much. So a huge thank you to Ben for being on the podcast today. Hope you enjoyed our chat. Go to the show notes to find out more about Ben's work and to read his fabulous book, How to Enjoy Art. I really recommend it. And before you go, if you want to get more slow looking into your life and make it a regular practice, join us in the Slow Looking Club. We have weekly themes and monthly get-togethers. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can come and join us. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Art Engager podcast with me, Claire Baum. 
You can find more art engagement resources by visiting my website, thinkingmuseum.com. And you can also find me on Instagram, at Thinking Museum, where I regularly share tips and tools on how to bring art to life and engage your audience. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share with others and subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.